0: Welcome to the 457SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about Southeast Ohio, our community. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm
1: Aaron Payne. I'm
0: Susan Tevin.
1: I'm Atish Baidya.
0: In today's episode, we'll be talking about reversing overdoses, and our conversation continues on what it will take to bring jobs and economic opportunities here to our friends and neighbors in Southeast Ohio.
2: Talking to Jack Freck, retired director of the Athens County Job and Family Services and general advocate for the impoverished in Appalachia. Uh, Jack, thanks for coming in.
3: Susan, thank you for having me. Thank you all. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here.
2: So, what does success
0: look like? We can well, we can couch it in the political end. What does a, a successful Trump presidency look like for Southeast Ohio? Mm-hmm. What does this area need? Mm-hmm. And and how do we make sure we get it? So I pose that question to you. <laughs> is that all? <laughs> That's it. Oh, you want, question easy question, it. Right? Why, Why didn't you, didn't you ask, ask sooner? Right. <laughs> right. You said I've got this. Been working <laughs> oh, on it. Yeah, and we know that you've right been there. working on this. So. <laughs>
3: well, uh, first of all, I, I thank you for inviting me, and I really do appreciate the way you guys are approaching this, and and you know the way you preface this, and, and your thought process on this, because. Uh, you know, we're, uh, there are no disposable people. You know, I talk about that all the time. It, it, but I always started out out from the context of, you know, we tend to look at poor people as disposable people or minorities or people that we don't know or associate with. You know, we look at them as disposable. We don't really care what happens to them. But when I say there are no disposable people, I mean there are no disposable people, which means the most awful, terrible, racist, hard-hearted, you know, whatever, I won't use any nasty words, but that person out there is also not disposable. They're still here. They're still here no matter what, and they're still a person, and they still vote, and they still go to the grocery store, and they still function with the rest of us. You know, I think that's a huge challenge. In some ways, I think the prospects for overcoming that challenge is greater in Appalachia. Uh, mostly because I think that the communities, they're smaller. People have had to work together out of necessity. I mean, I know this being in the social service field. All the agencies have to pull together, not because we necessarily like the other people in the other agency, but because we just can't get our job done without cooperating with them. That's not necessarily true in a lot of the big metropolitan areas where these are huge organizations, where folks, you know, can can really function separately more easily, quite honestly. So I think that's true. And and it's also true that there are more likely to be people living in heterogeneous economic communities. In other words, when you go to um, a small community like Chansey or Millfield or, you know, any of these small places, you'll see, you know, a handful of really, really nice houses of people who work at the university or, you know, people who have good jobs who just want to live there, and they have a nice home or whatever, and then, you know, the Plains is a good example. Uh, You know, you go a block or two over, and it's, you know, trailers that are falling apart, that are in pieces. Uh, They're more likely for their kids to be going to school together. You don't have a lot of private schools around here that kids ship their, you know, people ship their kids off to. So I think in that sense, you know, we have um, the opportunity, at least, to kind of foster that kind of, uh, you know, we're all in this together attitude and break down some of those barriers. Um, I think we, we have the historical problem with the fact that there just are not enough jobs that pay well enough. Uh, a lot of it's just due, due, due to geography. You know, I, I think I've often said that what we need is another glacier because you know it was we're the unglaciated plain down here, which means we didn't get flattened down given all that great soil that they have up in Northwest Ohio. If the glacier would come down and flatten <laughs> us out and turn us all into great farmland, we'd be fine. You know, but that didn't happen. We may have to wait another 10,000 years for that, or maybe not as long, you know, who knows? We could all be flooded sooner than that. <laughs> But, you know, I, I, it's meant that this you know was not transportation was a bigger problem. Uh, farming was a bigger problem. Uh, you know, b- building industrial areas, and you know all those things that go with transportation, water and all those things were always easier to do near the lakes and the big rivers and the the flat areas and and uh, places where the resources, I mean, that was not true here. I mean, it was bigger here where the extraction industries, timber, coal. Things like that, which we did have a lot of. Those were not long term economic uh, plans that, that were going to do well for us. They were not particularly friendly to our environment. I mean, they were hard, hard, hard work. Uh, most of the, the profits earned from those went outside the area from the beginning, still do. Uh, you know, so it's always been kind of a, a harsh time here. Um, So, you know, that's just the reality of it. Now, I mean, I think that uh, much has been done in the Appalachian area to improve the highway systems. I mean, we all have... I remember when there weren't four-lane roads coming and going out of Athens all the time, you know, Mm, back in the day. Yeah, (laughs) uh, you know, but there are now. So, I mean, that's, that's huge progress. Things like, you know, that are opened up because of improved communication, because of, you know, broadband and all that kind of stuff, are things that have improved the opportunity down here anyway. I mean, we still lag behind other areas of the state. That's always going to be a problem. But, you know, I think when we talk about judging how this president or any president has done, because the truth of the matter is the last president did not do anything great for Appalachia. I mean, let's just get sure, real about sure. it. Or the one before that. You know?
0: right. right. So but uh, bigger than but, so any one presidency right. or That's any one point, administration. Right. Exactly. It's like, well, so now here we are now.
3: Right. So this this is, I think, is, you know, this is uh, a time to talk uncomfortable truths. I think uh, Al Gore called it inconvenient. truths. Right. You know, he's already got that one. I'll just go back to uncomfortable. Um, the truth is, is that our economies for the last. 50 60 70 years in southeast ohio and appalachia have really been dependent on the kindness of others and i don't mean charity i mean government uh, you know we ha- i mean we wouldn't have the roads we wouldn't have the things that we have had it not been for government coming down here we, n- we could never have afforded those things locally but beyond that uh, you know we were doing better when i first came here in the late 60s there were lots of little factories and things the utility companies were some of the largest uh, employers um, well so many things have become automated and mechanized not just here but everywhere the utility companies now have a small handful of crews that do everything um, the manufacturing's all left the area because quite honestly they could get they came here because they thought they could get cheap labor well they could back in the 50s and 60s but they can they can always get cheaper labor somewhere else as long as the price of transportation is as low as it is now it'll still be cheaper for them to make it in vietnam bangladesh some other place much cheaper and ship it over here than make it here so the uncomfortable truth is, is that you know if you look at a lot of the appalachian community what you'll see is that some of the largest employers are school districts our local government our local private nonprofit hospitals our local nonprofit agencies they are becoming not just the, the, the largest employers, but they're the most stable employers who are the most likely to pay a living wage and offer benefits. This is what's happened throughout. And the other thing, and this is, you know, while, while we're on the uncomfortable trail here, um, transfer payments, uh, Social Security, uh, SSI, veterans benefits, welfare benefits, food stamps, transfer payments. Statewide, uh, something like 20% of the income that people get come from transfer payments. The Appalachian counties it's I think maybe 27 28% overall but there are most of the counties in our immediate area it's well over 30%. Mm-hmm. Might be 32 or more percent of the, of the income they get are in transfer payments. Well, you know all of those things are under assault too. Food stamps were cut drastically during the Obama administration. Cash assistance was cut under Kasich and numerous other folks. I mean, to the tune of the Appalachian counties lost $140, $150 million just in cuts to welfare. Cash assistance and food stamps rendered by the Obama administration and the Kasich administration. Can you say that
0: again? Say yes. that number again?
3: Cuts in food stamps and in cash assistance were approximately between $140 to $150 million dollars over the last five years, and I don't mean total, I mean the annual cut has been by that much money. It's because of cuts that were made by the Obama administration in food stamps, cuts to people on cash assistance that the Kasich administration did because of the TANF block grant, huge, huge losses of funds. So we're talking over the past five years like over
1: a half a billion, half a billion dollars?
3: Yes, absolutely, or higher, or higher, and, and, it, and it continues to grow. Because, you know, more and more people are getting cut off food stamps and cash assistance every day as we speak in the counties throughout Ohio, but in Appalachian County as well. Even though, you know, I think there was an improvement in the poverty rate statewide by a half a percent or something like that. I mean, right. it, it no way reflects the amount of cuts and benefits we've had. But, but beyond that, I mean, I think because we are so dependent on those things, you look at issues like uh, SSI, Supplemental Security Income which is essentially welfare for people who are elderly or disabled. Well, the, the, the benefit level the people gets around 700 bucks a month, which is roughly 75% of the federal poverty level. So we basically put people through a very, very painstaking process to determine they're disabled and they can't work. And once we've determined that, we give them three-fourths of what we know they need to live on. I mean, that's the official policy and has been, I mean, all along. So when you, when you take those kind of situations or you tighten up eligibility and cut back on eligibility for unemployment compensation, which they have done, uh, you look at all of those things and you will see soon there will be also pressure on Social Security as well. Uh, all of those transfer payments, uh, you know, pressure has been to keep them down to, to minimize those. Well, the Appalachian County, that's a third of your income so well, lo and behold I mean the, the other reason you have a hard time with small businesses struggling is because their customers don't have any money right. uh, and you know uh, but try to find try to find local officials any county any county in southeastern Ohio who are going to make it their principal cause to go to bat for increases in transfer payments I mean if you want to do something that would solve a lot of problems in southeastern Ohio Increase payments to the disabled under SSI to the full poverty level. Uh, that would bring in hundreds of millions. You know, uh, have a, a, a unemployment compensation policy that covered all of these part-time and temporary workers. That all these people now that are working at Dollar General and follow and you know, all that kind of stuff. Have m- more reasonable unemployment. Those kind of things. Don't cut all these people off welfare. <laughs> I mean, I can go up and down the list here and tell you that. Different approaches to this, even different approaches in, by local government encouraging people to sign up for these programs, you know, fighting for those benefits would shift hundreds of millions of dollars into the Appalachian counties, which would, of course, feed the people housing, improve housing, it would improve local businesses, it would improve health care, improve all those kind of things. But I would challenge you to find any any Appalachian County and where the local officials, county commissioners, state representatives, any people are fighting for that. And yet, you know, that it's the economic reality.
1: The, the, I think the, the narrative is if you increase people's welfare payments or whatnot, that they're just gonna take that money, be lazy, live off of that, not be productive, and it's gonna be an overall drain on our economic resources and it's actually not gonna help the economy and grow the economy. It's gonna it's gonna drain the economy instead. And you're you're arguing that, in fact, the opposite.
3: Absolutely. And and the re- I mean the thing about it is is that uh, our uh, willingness to cut taxes for other people has had nothing to do with what's going on with welfare payments. Of course, all these payments represent a very small portion of the budget anyhow. And, you know, when we that's the other part of this, the economics of this is that uh, we talk about taxes. The truth of the matter is is that in most Appalachian counties where the poverty rate is so high, it's also all the income levels tend to be lower. Uh, Appalachian counties are almost all upside down in terms of what they pay out in taxes and what they get back. In other words, we get back a lot more than we pay out for the Appalachian counties. Some places like Athens County, it's like because we have the university it's like three or four times as much as we pay out that we get back. Mm. And it, the other thing to remember about this is that um, our school districts are all poor, and poor districts get much more state money than the other more wealthy districts. <coughs> that a much higher percentage of the people who have health care have health care through Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits, uh, public employment. Uh, all of these, you know, in most of the Appalachian counties the majority of health care is paid for by government now. So what happens is that because we, we have, you know, most of these rural counties, you might have three or four hundred hundred people who make more than a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Not thousands, you know, two or 300. If you go to Geauga County or Warren County or, you know, one of those wealthier suburban counties, the number of people who make over 200,000 is probably seven or 8,000 people. Uh, you know, they have like a 4% poverty rate, not a 30% or 25%. So what happens is those are the payer counties. Those are the counties who pay out a lot more than they get back in benefits. I mean, in order for us to get s- several times more than we pay out, someone's got to be paying out a lot more. Well, that's, th- that's the economic reality that we don't do on purpose down here. In other words, what you'll find is our representatives will turn around and vote with the people who are coming, voting for the suburban plans that essentially try to limit their liability and how, how much they have to pay out because we don't want to stand up and say, no, we deserve it. Our, our, folks, our folks work. There's, there's been a work requirement in welfare for 20 years now. Uh, the vast majority of people who are getting these assistance programs are already working. Uh, you know, and, of course, that's the other part of this is that the jobs down here, our, our low wage jobs, our um, fast food jobs, whatever, have always paid minimum wage, whereas the ones in Columbus and Cleveland and the other places have all paid a couple dollars an hour more for the same jobs. Our manufacturing jobs always paid two or three dollars an hour less than manufacturing jobs in other parts of the states. Mm-hmm. I mean, our wages across the board in all of our, all of our people who work have always been lower because people would take the jobs here. You know, that's what the labor market would bear. So, you know, you have all these factors going on out there that, uh, you know, that force the wages down for our folks, uh, that keep the benefits that they're entitled to. I mean, this is not a debate as to whether or not people who are disabled should get help or not. We're just talking about how much you should give them once you determine that. Right. You know, we're not talking about changing all the rules on welfare or unemployment or anything necessarily, but we're talking about, You know, once you've determined that someone can't support themselves, shouldn't you give them at least enough money to meet their basic needs kind of thing? Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's beyond that, too, when you start looking at uh, they're talking about block granting Medicare um, and food stamps and things like that. Well, that was a huge disaster for cash assistance. I mean, when they block granted that program 20 years ago, they froze the appropriation for it. It's literally the same dollar amount now as it was 20 years ago. well Well, you know if they choose to do that for medicaid and food stamps which is what they have always wanted to do well then you know five six seven eight nine ten years from now you're going to see a program that can support half the people that it is now so you know those kind of things because they are so critical to our health care infrastructure if they cut medicare if they cut medicaid if they cut back on you know on public employees health care which they've already started doing those things make it less possible for our hospitals to even function. A n- number of hospitals throughout Appalachia and Southeast, Ohio have already closed because they're just no longer viable. Uh, people can't pay out of pocket, and as the other third-party payment sources, I mean, which is when you saw the the thing that w- that, w- that was different was when the Obamacare folks expanded Medicaid. That, that brought in, say, in Athens County, that brought about another, I don't know, 3,000 people onto Medicaid, which meant you had more people who could pay. Well, what you saw was that the healthcare care providers started gearing up for that. I mean, eventually you started seeing more ads in the paper for medical assistance for, you know, I mean, they don't they hire the cheapest people they can, you know, to fill these these needs, but you know that brings that brought several billion dollars to Ohio in healthcare care dollars. Well, those dollars, well, this is the other part of it. They tend to go to the poorest communities, but not those are not direct cash payments to people in those communities. So the money itself, the profit, tends to go to people who already have money, people who own healthcare corporations, doctors, you know, well-paid professionals. They say actually see the money from that increase, and poor people get the service. But when you talk about those several billion dollars coming in the community, it does not necessarily equate to more money in the pockets of poor people. So when we get back to the original question of, you know, what are we looking for? I I have always felt that the only real measurement about, about poverty that matters is money changing hands. If there is not money changing hands and ending up in the pockets of poor people, then we have not succeeded. We may, even, we may have a very sympathetic public We may have succeeded at that. We may have all these great social work programs where we're holding their hands night and day. We have a social worker strapped to their back you know, every time they move. We may have all kind of great things for them out there. But if they don't have enough money to pay rent at a decent house, if they don't have enough money to keep a car on the road that functions, if they don't have enough money to feed their kids every day and put decent clothes on them, if they don't have enough money for diapers... If they don't have enough money for feminine hygiene products, for over-the-counter medications, if they don't have enough money for you know, healthy food, pots pans, if they don't have that, then we haven't succeeded. And I think you know it's the measurement is did any money change hands. Now that can come from jobs, and one of the things that the, the President Trump is talking about is increasing the jobs. If he's able to bring jobs back here that pay living wage. And that puts more money in their pocket. You know, Anything we can do to promote that, I think we need to do. We absolutely need to do that because people would rather do that. That's what they would rather do themselves is have those jobs. But if they can't do that, then they have to recognize that people still have to eat. People still have to have dignity. They Their kids have to be able to function at school. They have to be able to function even to get mental health and substance abuse counseling. So there has to be you know, a safety net out there that protects people. All of those kind of things disproportionately help the Appalachian community. They also disproportionately help the inner city communities. I mean, let's get real about that too. I mean, the other group of, when you look at the, all the statistics about poverty levels and educational and health levels, all of those outcomes are almost exactly the same for the east side of Cleveland as they are for, you know, the Meigs County i mean it's the same problem so you know putting money into those problems and having money change hands in appalachia also has money change hands in inner city cleveland and columbus and cincinnati and those communities which disproportionately will help benefit people of color i mean that's true as well but it's it's you know unless money changes hands it doesn't matter I mean, you can talk all you want, and there will be lots of talk. And we can all talk about all the behavioral things they need to do to act differently or better. But if money doesn't change hands, then we haven't succeeded.
2: And the other side of the coin is um, incarcerated people. Mm -hmm. I know you did work with the Reentry Task Force, which works to reduce recidivism rates and works to get uh, currently incarcerated people back on their feet after they come out. How important, talk about how important, getting people out of the incarceration cycle is to getting this area back up and running as it were
3: you know it's it's uh, ironic too because um, incarceration w- has been looked at many times as the business that was going to save Appalachia too mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean you build prisons mm-hmm. and jails mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. been true in the inner cities off as the, well off the backs I of mean people. yes get... yes I mean that's <laughs> again that was the sales pitch that that was you know that was made sometime and of course you know that that never proved to be true either. Of course, you were building a business, especially the for-profit ones. But even for those that are government-run, there's institutional pressures to keep those full like the unions that employ those folks, like the vendors who provide, you know, food to those folks. I mean, there is institutional pressure to maintain and keep those things going. But unfortunately, that isn't the the factor that determines that mostly. Mostly what I think determines our whole attitude about incarceration is that we are probably the least forgiving people anywhere. We just don't forgive people. You know, people make a mistake that's it. They're done. You know, we we label them as a criminal and they become a disposable person. And that is just an incredibly costly and stupid way to approach mankind and our, our fellow citizens out there. We can't afford it. I mean, it's a value that we can't afford, to be honest. But, you know, I think we have to start with much more reasonable incarceration policies about who we lock up in the first place and who we label as a criminal, and the collateral consequences are ridiculous. I mean, once someone gets a felony conviction, you know, all the list of things that they can't do, you know, the official things they can't do is like hundreds of things. Mm-hmm. But the, the unofficial things that they can't do, once we force them to be labeled, and not only that, but now because, because of the Internet, once you get a felony conviction, it doesn't even matter if you get it expunged. Because people can look up the newspaper records. They Google your name. They're going to see what you did, regardless of what you think you did mm-hmm. to expunge all those records. So, again, this kind of gets back to the issue that I raised about poverty. we got to take a harder look at ourselves and say, okay, well, you know, this guy was on drugs, and broke into his neighbor's house and, you know, stole his TV. And he did it five years ago. And he went to jail for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So why can't we forgive him? Why can't we forget about, that? why can't we forget it? That's the real question is, he did it, now we're gonna give him a chance to go out there in the world and, you know, just like anyone else, he he was been punished more severely probably than he deserved for a TV set, you know, but okay, you know, let's, let's that's on us. And that's the thing that has to change in order for the policy about incarceration to change. You know, we have to forgive people and we have to forget, and we have to give them another chance. Now, certainly there will be people who will re but we almost make that a certainty when we say that we're not gonna let you get a job, Great. we're not gonna let you live in any place that's safe and healthy, you know, we're not going to ensure that even while you're incarcerated that you get the, you know, 80% of these people are in prison now because they have substance abuse issues you would think that would be the ideal place then to have constant substance abuse programs going on, you know, the best in the world happening right there because we have them right in our grasp. No, no, a lot of these folks, especially if they're only in for a short period of time, can't even get into the programs because, you know, you have to be, it's like a year waiting list and you're not even going to be in more than a year or so. You know, so it's, it's our policies about all that have to change with our attitude. And those things are, you know, more of a problem in the Appalachian area and the inner city areas. So I'm like, again, the problems are so parallel. Because, you know, of our economic circumstances, we are more likely to have our folks get involved with drugs, have serious mental health problems, and then end up incarcerated as a result. Uh, so it, they become more of a problem for us because we, don't, we also don't tend to have the resources. You know, try to find a hospital around here that will do detox. Uh, almost all of them have stopped doing it. I believe now you have to go to either Lancaster, maybe maybe Marietta, but none of the local hospitals will do detoxes and for alcohol, which is still a huge huge problem out there. Try to find an inpatient, you know, uh, hospital to do uh, uh, inpatient uh, substance abuse treatment or mental health treatment. You know, you're going to find yourself going someplace pretty far away. I mean, we don't have the resources you know, to deal with a lot of those problems that are serious problems here. So, you know, that's, and and just making people aware. People don't even want to talk about, uh, you know, as you know from the, which we did, we started the Reentry Task Force, ran that for years, you know. We had a real great core group of people who showed up to all that and did and some newspaper reporters who did great stories about it. But, you know, I didn't see this kind of catch on in the community as something that we all need to embrace, you know, let's embrace our returning felons. Uh, That part didn't seem to happen.
1: You talked about if President Trump can bring jobs into this area, that Mm -hmm. that would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. But you also talked about the need for a safety net. Mm -hmm. And so there's this conflict between, this contradiction between, it seems, and he hasn't enacted policy. So just based on some reporting I've heard and some of the folks that he's chosen to nominate into certain cabinet positions, Mm -hmm that, okay, if he's successful in bringing the jobs to this area, that's great, but then he'll have other policies, the administration will have other policies that will eat
3: away at the safety net that we yes, have. Yes, yes. So how can we... <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the, I think the thing is is that uh, um, this has been true of every president too. I mean, they have all done some good things. I mean, George Bush expanded uh, prescription drug coverage to, to Medicare, which is something that was needed for That was uh, done under the Bush administration. Uh, you know, Obama did expand Medicaid to lot. I mean, they they've all but he also cut food stamps. I mean, you know, that's the, the reality of politics, too. Politics right. is about compromise and it's about, you know, trade-offs that happen in Washington. The challenge, though, is to keep people down here informed and engaged in all of these, because I, I think that's the other thing. We, we fall into this trap of believing, you know, we have to be the Republicans or Democrats that we have to either support our, our team, you know, and oppose the other team or whatever, instead of thinking of, you know, we have to support ourselves and our neighbors. That's our first priority. Now, sometimes Republicans will do that better. Sometimes the Democrats will. We don't really worry so much about the party labels. We shouldn't worry about them at all, quite honestly. What we should worry about is what's in our best interest and in our neighbor's best interest, those kind of things. If you do that, then you approach each policy decision um, by that standard. And I do think that's one of the other opportunities, though, that comes from, the, from Trump, is that uh, he is clearly not a party ideologue. You know, what concerns me about him is that I, I, I am fearful that people will look at him as the strong man answer that gives us permission not to be engaged ourselves. And I think there are a lot of people out there who find comfort in that, people who actually believe that, you know, this is what we really need, is somebody who is really strong, really tough, who's going to protect us, you know, and that's what I think a lot of people voted for. Because, and the reason they were willing to vote for that now is because their lives are so desperate because they're so, they are afraid to stay the course the way it is now. People have been telling them, you know, we're gonna improve your life by four or 5%. They're saying, well, no, but it's dropped by 50%. I need to get back or I need to get to where I've never been. I, I, I have, my life has to get better. What scares me is that people have lost faith in themselves. And a lot of the reason things got bad is because people did not stand up to the George Bush cuts. They didn't stand up to the Obama cuts. People did not stand up for themselves, you know, when this happened. And I know it's hard for them because, you know, where you get your information from, you know, what's right, what's the right thing to do, you know, what do they know, you know, how, what's their frame of reference for all this. It's a real struggle for people who are trying to survive out there and so i understand that i do but you know it's what scares me the most is you know 40 percent of the people didn't vote uh you know where many of the people who did vote voted for a strongman who would come in and fix their problems for them which you know i think they they are looking for they're looking for that to happen i'm not sure what the consequences are if that doesn't happen and what I hope happens, what I hope happens is that everybody wakes up and realizes, you know, we are all in this together. We do have to engage in political discussion. We do have to engage in our community. You know, we do have to, the, our, our well being is in fact very much, very much uh, tied to the well being of our neighbors. And, and, I, and I think it's just, uh, there needs to be a big wake up call for the Appalachian community to say, look, the reality is, is that we have to have sharing on a larger scale, and that means that people who have a lot, who live in the, the metro counties, or who live in the, uh, the suburban counties, can share more with us and still be filthy rich. <laughs> they, they could, we don't have to keep cut. and the idea that cutting taxes for rich people is going to somehow result in them coming down here and creating low-skill, high-wage jobs in <laughs> Southeastern Ohio is total craziness. I mean, it has never worked. It won't ever work. I mean, and the money they get, if they any, talk to anyone who's a financial advisor. If those people want to make money with their, they make more money off investing in technology that replaces labor. That's what they're doing. They're more they make more money investing on, on manufacturing with offshore labor. That's what they're doing. I mean, that's where the good investments are because their investment in money is to make more money Not to create jobs in inner city Cleveland or Meigs County, Ohio, or wherever. So we can keep cutting the taxes for the people in Warren and Geauga County and all these other, you know, with rich places, which is disproportionately where the tax cuts go, and we will never see a dime of that back. In fact, you know, we are far more likely to see that money back by raising the uh, subsidies for education for poor kids, by raising public assistance benefits. By raising uh, funds for public works here, you know, to build better roads, better highways, in- infrastructure, all those kind of things. Hospitals, that's what will bring money here. It's more likely, far more likely to happen that way than it is for these folks to finally, they, they have literally trillions of dollars that, that the corporations are sitting on offshore. You know, how many of them are sitting and saying, you know what, I really need to bring some of those billions back. And invested in inner city Cleveland. I need to bring that money back and invest. I mean, they could do that now. They could have done it any time. You know, they're choosing not to. And no matter how much more money we keep piling on them, there that does not change the economic equation. So,
1: in terms of jobs, what kind of jobs can be brought to this region?
3: What kind of jobs do you see as? I think obviously, feasible. any manufacturing job is feasible uh if, you know we can make things that uh, are competitive with other countries. The other thing is that, uh, you know, some of this is because we do insist on always getting the most the cheapest thing, not necessarily the best thing. And also, you know, we don't we don't, we all run out there and buy stuff with Walmart, all of which is made somewhere else. You know, I mean, so the, the fact is a lot of the things that we need here could be made here closer. They cut transportation costs. You know they may not be as cheap, but they they the fact that they stimulate the economy here that would be good. The other thing is is that, you know we have just an infinite need for restoring the environment down here. I mean, you know, there's water restoration projects because we've got orange water coming out of the ground from our, you know, our mine asset. Um, You know, reforestation, you know, there's strip pits out there. There's all kind of things that could be done down here that would make the the living environment better. You know, think about how much we could do with, and uh, there were a lot of these programs back in the 70s, uh, public service employment programs. Where you suddenly had a whole bunch more people to help do security work for the police with the police departments, you had more teacher aides, you had more people working in social services, you had more people doing things to help other people. Think about you know chore services for the for the elderly and disabled. Uh, you know there's just an infinite number of those kind of things that could go on out there, that would be helpful for the community, that would give people something to do that was uh, Productive, you know, that they could feel good about themselves for doing too. There are a lot of those kind of public. Ser- I'm a big fan of, of that kind of public service employment. Uh, it needs you know to be mission oriented, and it needs to be done by people who believe in what they're doing, which isn't always true for the public sector today.
0: Here in this area, with the lack of broadband services and the and the lack of internet access, cuts us off. Mm-hmm. From the future or, right. or from the now, even, right. never mind the future, right. cuts us off from the now. And so, uh, building that infrastructure, um, yep, the water has to be there and all of that. So, that's important. And, okay, we can run electric wires and we can see the big transformers and that. But if we know, we know the way the world works, if people do not have access. To the outside world, if if employers don't have access to right. the outside world, it's not going to happen. They're not right. going to build in.
3: Well, and, and I think you know this is uh, the the new infrastructure battles uh, for rural areas in general, particularly Appalachia. You know, are all about broadband and about access. 40, 50 years ago, it was about highways. Right. literally. Right. And before which you, that,
0: water canals, right? right? Right,
3: exactly. I mean, you know, and but and what you had were businessmen. Uh, Kenner Bush and, you know, many of the folks that I have a great deal of respect for from that ed- that era worked tirelessly, even though they were businessmen. What they worked on were the development of highways. They worked on projects, you know, that would, and before that, rural electrification. I mean, things, all of those things they knew as businessmen were essential to for the business community down here. Well, you know, that same kind of effort has to be made to bring broadband. But it's also the last mile they talk about on broadband. And and this is a good example. of A a lot of the things that need to be done are things that we've already done. We know how to do, but they simply did not have the public support because people didn't want to share. And I'll give a good example about this one. One of the projects we did back in the late 90s, when we used to have a lot of TANF money, temporary assistance for needy, needy families, caseloads were going down, state had money they couldn't, even, couldn't spend fast enough, so they were allocating a lot of it out to the counties. We, did, we had $9 million in special projects down here, all of which we lost, by the way, but one of the projects that we did is that we found out that the state, uh, which was buying new computers for all their state employees, including the county welfare employees, every three years, so, you know, they would renew them every three years and they would take the old ones and they were keeping them in warehouses. And then some of these, they were like auctioning off to third world countries and who knows what. Well, we found out about that. And so basically we, we struck a deal at that time. And I think this was with the, the Taft administration where we could get those computers that came literally came off our desk and, you know, in other counties for free. But we had to strip them because they had information on them that was confidential or whatever. We had to strip them and we had to uh, load new hard drives on them, and you know we had to add speakers, different things. Um, we used some of this TANF money to do a contract with Hawking College. They had a computer program up there where they were teaching people computer skills, computer science stuff. So we had their stu- we did a contract with them to have their students strip these these uh, computers and put the new hard drives through all that stuff in them. We made them available for low income families. I think they had to be below 150% of poverty and they had to have a kid in school. And the reason we got into this project, by the way, is because we had clients coming to us all the time and libraries complaining because kids were getting homework assignments to do stuff on the internet. Right. And they were lined up at the library. You know, to get their half hour there, there would be huge lines there. And of course, none of these kids had computers at home, they couldn't afford them. Right. So we got these computers. We had Hawking College clean them up. We set up a training program through Hawking College. We also built—not built, but we set, the, set up the workstation out in the plains with computer lab in it mm-hmm. to do computer training. This is all when all this started. So we basically said, to low-income families, if you have a kid of school age, if your income's below 150 percent of poverty, if you, some adult in your household will come in and do 12 hours of training on how to use this computer, we'll give it to you for free, and we'll buy your internet access for a year because we bought internet access at that time like in huge lots we were paying eight nine bucks a month for it so we could get some we were able to get someone a, a new computer relatively new totally refurbished um, year's worth of internet access and I think our total cost on it was maybe 200 bucks including all the hardware and everything we had to do um, and so we did I think it was between 2500 and 3,000 of them. Which it was by far the largest project in the country, and we put them in the hands of low-income students out there. And the first thing we heard was from teachers, talking about how kids' performance was going up, their grades were going up. You know, even though we did this, there were most of the other counties. In fact, there were no other counties who adopted this on the scale that we did. And the reason they didn't do it is because some of those counties, the people were upset because they knew there would be families in there whose income was above that who didn't have a computer. So they'd rather deny them to these kids. There was also this fear from some of the county commissioners in the other counties that, well, what if these people look up porn? You know, it's just like, well oh my gosh. What if they do? You know, I mean, it's like I, I don't, you know, aren't we more worried about their kids getting an education and you know what I mean, but that but they looked for any reason they could and they did not do this. I mean, there were only a very small handful in the counties in the in the state who did this. We ran this program for three or four years. I was doing great actually then uh, when um, Governor Strickland came into office, he changed the policy and decided that we had to start buying these and they wouldn't give them to us for free anymore. At the same time, the state cut our TANF money. I mean, the whole $9 million went away for all that and all the other projects. So the whole thing ended. I mean, the whole thing literally ended. Wow. And, uh, but we've seen that kind of thing come and go before. It's not as though we don't know how to fix these things. We absolutely know how to fix them. And not only that, we know how to fix them cheaply. I mean, we know how to do it in an efficient way because, you know, we never had enough money. We always had to be efficient. We always had to be conscious of helping the most people with the money we had. So we always looked at things that way. We always had a good deal for the taxpayer, too. But the truth is, is that, you know, we never got past the, the point that people really cared enough that politicians really cared enough or that they were willing to really help out poor people. We never got past that point. Thank you, Jack,
2: for spending time with us explaining all the meaning of life and all of that. So thank you for coming in.
3: I hope I didn't ramble on way too long. No,
2: No, I think we should have you back.
0: uh, Right. (laughs) I think one of the things I I do, again, I thank you for for being here and, again, outlining the work that has to be done and it's a multi-pronged, multi-layered, relentless... Job.
4: coming up the day i spoke with director mary his crews had already dealt with fatal overdoses we've had two, today. Two, today. two deaths today two deaths today and the one house we've been to numerous times
0: that story's next
1: and welcome back to the 457 seo You know, we have the opioid crisis in this area and overdose rates across the Ohio Valley are going up. And that means a once obscure medication is really becoming a household item. It's called naloxone and it's a drug that can reverse overdoses and with training, it can be administered by just about anyone. So with Aaron's work with the Ohio Valley resource, he traveled just a little bit south of the 457 SEO to see how one community is using this drug.
4: The sound of sirens in Cabell County, West Virginia, has a good chance of indicating an overdose these days. EMS Director Gordon Mary says through September 24th, his agency has responded to 622 overdose calls this year. EMS last year responded to more than 900 overdoses, more than in the past three years combined. The county received national attention in August after responding to 26 overdoses in just four hours. That many overdoses in that short a time was a challenge. It just took us off guard there for the first five minutes or so. All 26 victims that night survived thanks in part to the medication naloxone. Naloxone, also known by its brand name Narcan, is becoming more a part of everyday life due to the epidemic. To understand how it works, you have to understand what happens to the body during an overdose.
2: Opioids are depressants. In the body, they slow everything down. It's the respiratory depression that kills people. They depress the respirations to zero, to where they just don't breathe.
4: That's Dr. Melinda Ford, who runs an addiction clinic at Ohio University. If the victim can't be resuscitated through emergency breathing, naloxone is administered as a shot or sprayed in the nose. The medicine essentially sweeps the opioids off receptors in the brain and puts the victim in immediate withdrawal.
2: It won't kill you, but you wish it would, because it feels horrible. Everything hurts you got to imagine all the receptors in your brain that are meant to sense pain have just been opened up.
4: Naloxone has been around since it was patented in 1961, but is getting public attention now because of the opioid crisis. Director Mary has been with Cabell County EMS for over 40 years. He says he can remember a time around 20 years ago when they started carrying naloxone. Very little usage back when I was on their vehicle. Unfortunately, as time goes by, our usage has increased dramatically. With overdose rates increasing in the Ohio Valley region in the last decade, governments have pushed for more access to naloxone. Ohio passed a law in 2014, adding other first responders to the list of agencies carrying the medicine. West Virginia and Kentucky followed suit with bills in 2015. Mary says each overdose call receives an ambulance, fire truck, and police officer. And while EMS administers an estimated 90% of their naloxone, the legislation is a good safety net. I'd say it goes, we do the majority, fire, then police. And it's not because they don't want to, it's because we're there so fast. Kentucky is also now having naloxone supplies stocked in locations not previously thought of: factories, government buildings, and schools. Drug Control Policy Director Van Ingram says his office was approached by the makers of Narcan Adapt Pharma about offering two doses free of charge to any high school in Kentucky. So we put together a training for school nurses representing almost every district in Kentucky and then gave them the option of uh, accepting that Narcan kit. Response from the community was mixed. Some questioned whether it was needed with few students across Kentucky suffering from overdoses and even fewer actually overdosing while in the school building. But Ingram says schools bring in many different types of people. Not just students, but staff and people coming to uh, events at the school. So they're a natural gathering place of people, and, and that lends itself to this type of a program. Ohio worked to get naloxone in the homes of those at high risk for overdoses. In 2012, Project DAWN, which stands for Deaths Avoided with Naloxone, was created. Next,
2: assemble the nasal spray naloxone.
4: Now at 50 locations across the state, anyone can get a simple 20-minute training and walk out with two free doses of naloxone and a training video. Jolene DeFuehrheimer with the Ohio Department of Health says simplicity was key.
2: I think it was a very important part of making sure that it was easy for that person to do so it could be replicated and people would not be nervous about administering it.
4: She says they collect data on who comes in for training in order to find the best way to make the program more successful.
2: Not only looking at just that process of how many kits are being distributed, how many people are we reaching, but the impact.
4: Kentucky offers free training sessions through the Harm Reduction Coalition, and some county health departments in West Virginia also offer training. Early research indicates these programs are successful. One study published in 2013 looked at a pilot program in Massachusetts. The 19 communities with public naloxone training were able to significantly reduce fatal overdoses compared to communities without the training. Gordon Mary wants more people to take advantage of the training. I wouldn't deny anybody the help. I think anything we can do to get them help is the right thing to do. But he cautions that naloxone is not a magic serum. It won't spark a lifestyle change. The most frustrating thing, he says, is to revive someone only to see that person check out of the hospital and overdose again before they can restock the ambulance. They have the right to walk away, and there's nothing anybody can do. Everything works great to that point. The day I spoke with Director Mary, his crews had already dealt with fatal overdoses. We've had two today. Two today. Two deaths today. Two deaths today. And the one house we've been to numerous times. He says he doesn't know what the answer is. Naloxone can save lives, but it can't change life habits or turn the tide of the epidemic but at least it can give a person another chance.
0: When you talk to people, what did they say about the normalization of having this drug available in the way that it is now?
4: It's just something you have to do at this point. If you bury your head in the sand and say, oh, we can't normalize this, we have to stay fighting it, but we're not going to put the tools to keep people alive, ignoring it is just going to take away the chance someone might have of staying alive to get help.
0: And I know this means something different if it's your family member or if it's you. So is the most important thing to keep a person alive? And what point does that continue the cycle as as this, as this, you pointed out in the story and as the medical professionals pointed out? People get a chance to live their lives again, which also could mean overdose again. It doesn't knock them out of, it's not a rehab drug. This is just something that allows them not to die. doesn't necessarily change a life. At what point are natural consequences allowed to be natural consequences for behavior? I don't know that. I don't necessarily know I have the answer to that question, and if anyone does.
4: If someone eats unhealthy, they eat high-fat foods, and their arteries get clogged, and they have a heart attack, would you say that a defibrillator in a school is encouraging people to eat fatty foods. I don't think people would say that, but there's it goes back to there's this there is a stigma with opioids where people treat it as a 100% a choice and not a disease. That's not to say bad choices are never made when it comes to addiction, but when it becomes addiction it is a disease. Well, Much that's like a heart attack is considered a Medical event or disease. You, when you talked to the EMS
1: folks, there was this uh, one bite you had where Director Mary basically said, "You know, they can walk away. We revive them, and then you can just, they can just walk away." Do you get a sense from medical professionals and EMS professionals that maybe perhaps there she needs to be more of an intervention or some sort of system where you, if they, you are administered naloxone for an overdose, that You're not just allowed to walk away, that there has to be then some sort of intervention to get that person services and resources they need to make better choices for their health and for their well-being.
4: It it goes back to what Director Mary said is he doesn't know what the answer is because he's thought that himself, but if a person can just walk away from the emergency room, they can walk away from treatment and services too, and then you're just it's hard that would probably be a hard pitch to taxpayers say this person's gonna we're gonna spend all this money on a person who has overdose, and then we're gonna spend all this money on treatment and then they're gonna be able to just walk away and do it again so you're upping the ante so yes these these people need help but you got to be able to pitch it to taxpayers to make it seem worth it and right now it doesn't seem worth it to taxpayers And there's also legal ramifications of making someone do something. That's another big part of it is the legal ramifications of forcing someone to do something.
2: Um, Did any of them talk about uh, the the people that you talked to or the reporting that you did? I know that you can get naloxone as a, a parent or as a family member or friend. You can get that just in case someone you know overdoses. Um, did they talk about putting the weight of, you know, having to do that on the parents and what, what kind of process goes into that?
4: Actually, talking with the first responders, they don't mind that the is in the household, but they just feel more comfortable if they are the ones that are able to administer it. Uh, the issue they have is in some households, they might not get the full naloxone training, so they'll just have naloxone, someone overdoses, and they use it. But the opioids might overpower the medication over time, and then that person goes back into an overdose, which is possible, and then they just overdose anyway. Whereas medical professional would come in and know immediately, okay, we have to stay here, we have to monitor this, this, and this when somebody in a household might not know it. But it's good to have the naloxone in a household. The person issues the first dose, then they call 911. They arrive on the scene and say, hey, we administered not naloxone, and then they begin to monitor the signs and see if another dose may be needed. Some, I've heard to up to four. One person received four doses of naloxone to... Bad an overdose?
0: That whole idea of the legal ramifications to, to force someone to stay and, and get treatment, and that being a hard sell to taxpayers, is that as hard a sell. Again, if it's your family member, you want every opportunity to keep that person alive, and that makes sense. But if those drugs weren't on the truck... And they weren't in the home. um,
4: Potentially 26 people would have died in Huntington in a span of four hours. And those 26 people would have never got a second chance. So if you're if you're if you're an EMS. Drugs kill. Drugs
0: do kill. Right. That's Um, that's a part of the risk of people doing a living life.
1: Along that sort of line of thinking and, and thought, are you making the argument that if the drug is not available the way it is, widely available, that co- we let the natural consequences happen, and then because of those consequences, there is a natural reaction for us as a society to spur into doing something more, taking more action in a certain way. We're we're motivated to take action in a in a different way because of this consequence versus, I want to say drawing it out, but it's sort of like... It it's slowing our march to this threshold of untenability when it comes to a certain situation that we have to deal with as a society in terms of this social problem. It's slowing our. It's drawing out that reach that point that we need that break now that breaking point that we need to reach to to really have those hard conversations.
0: Possibly, yes. Possibly. I mean, there. I mean, well, it, it depends on. It just depends on. I don't know what the numbers are. Um, in terms of how many people, when they, when they hit bottom, so people don't come back, you know, people need to hit their own personal bottom. Um, and you want to be able to come back from that. And there's soft lessons and hard lessons in life, and some you don't get to come back from. That's that's a part of living on this planet. And, it, and so maybe. I don't have that answer, but I, I do wonder about that that drawing it out, that if if there's no follow-up treatment if the follow-up is not built in to the saving your life we can make how many runs to your house to to bring you back from the brink to bring you back from the brink to bring you back from the brink with no follow-up with no mandatory follow-up that we're not going to keep running taxpayers money to run the EMS the fire and the and the police out to your house at some point Maybe there's there's a smarter way to do it, and some and with that are built in hardcore lessons. Maybe
4: that's a question for your own humanity. It is. It's,
1: it's, it is. It's a it's a question about how do we
0: people die all the time. What
1: yeah. philosophy and ideology are we, ideology are we taking to looking at this problem?
0: Because am I helping you and not building in the how to help yourself? I can bring you back and I can massage you up, but if I leave you to your own devices again. Without an, if there's not a, a mandatory follow-up, maybe I'm not helping you, and then maybe I'm costing more other people around you even more.
1: We involuntarily commit folks who're doing harm to themselves to to mental hospitals to get treatment. That happens. Yes, exactly. So how do we frame what addiction is?
0: You're right. If I'm at your house, if I made four calls as the EMS, maybe maybe it's time that maybe there's a mandatory. Mm.
2: To rehab. I don't. I and don't know. We don't. as a society. I mean, that's the thing that who gets to decide what's causes you to be involuntarily committed to something, or you've just eaten too many cheeseburgers. I mean, it's it's sort of like you said. It's an ideology thing uh, where we've decided that opioids is something that you, for lack of a better word, choose to do it, as opposed to having insulin or having uh, to clogged arteries. That kind of thing, and it's it's sounds like it's all societal of what you've decided. This is a mental illness versus this is a illness that you've put upon yourself.
0: And even if you still have that illness for whatever reason, if addiction is something that your body needs because your body has has developed a a need for this dependency, stem, this dependency. Okay, but then how do we work toward? alleviating that dependency if that dependency brings you to the brink of death that causes me or our, our system to care for you when you're on the brink. Not once or, you know, once or more than once. I feels like we're being, at some point we're dropping the ball if I don't try to help you treat that dependency. yeah, And I just bring you back when that dependency goes too far.
1: Definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I think we don't have, obviously, we don't have the answers to these questions. And I think that's the point. But the point is that we ask these questions that we have the conversation and we talk about these issues and talk about it from all different facets and perspectives and ideologies and philosophies to determine, and I'm talking we as a society, to determine how we want to move forward, and what's the best way to move forward. But if we don't have these discussions, then we're just doing the same thing over and over again and repeating our mistakes, perhaps, and the important thing is to, to talk about it.
2: Up next, the amazing adventures of Chris Riddle.
5: She gets off the bus, and I drive by her as she's walking to the house, and I wave at her with my bandaged-up hand. And she has it look like oh
2: oh.
0: <laughs> so here's Chris Riddle and the amazing adventures of Chris Riddle. We're gonna to talk to uh, uh, Chris about a new addition to his home, but pause that. What the hell happened to your hand, man?
5: I broke my I broke my pinky plant soccer. Can you describe uh,
4: what's on your right hand for the listeners? Oh, I to.
5: have. It's a beautiful ace bandage and there is a uh, splint inside the bandage that's sort of keeping my pinky stable cuz I haven't gone to the orthopedic surgeon yet.
0: Oh, so like that? You yeah. broke it like that?
5: Yeah, but I mean the thing is it, it was broken for 2 weeks before I went to the doctor.
0: Oh, damn.
4: How oh. broken was it? <laughs> it was so
5: broken. <laughs>
4: That you need to see a surgeon.
0: That's right. So,
4: yeah. So how specifically did soccer injure your hand? I play in goal,
5: and I went to stop a shot, block the shot, and then slam my pinky right up on the goal post.
4: Ah. But did you win? I did. I got a shutout. That it was
5: sounds, a shutout. Oh, nice. I played three quarters of the game with a broken pinky. That's all that matters. And everyone's like, Why are you throwing the ball so crazy? And I'm
0: like, well, Why is your pinky sitting out
5: yeah. there <laughs> to the left? Yeah, let me reposition to this. The right. we'll
2: did you know immediately or did you like go through it and the adrenaline was kind of rushing and you couldn't I've
5: done this before. I knew yeah. it was broken. Um, yeah. mm. You know, and it's rec league, so it's serious. stuff. Sure. <laughs> right. You gotta leave it all that's the other thing. You gotta yeah. leave it all there on the field.
1: I've you seen can- Chris play.
2: I want
5: to. Yeah, you saw the you saw the game where I just stood there and watched the game myself, so I have good defenders. <laughs> yeah, I just said to do my taxes, crochet is great. Yeah, I've been playing. always played in goal. It's, it's my therapy. I yeah. like to give people a hard time. You know, because you come into my box there, mm-hmm. you're like, I'm going to score a goal. You're not going to score a goal, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to laugh at you. And I'll um, leave
0: my pinky out there yeah, for you. you know. Yeah, I I've had <laughs> someone
5: step on my thumb before, uh, stitches in my eye. Oh. Yeah, so... It's not rugby, but you know, it's.
0: (laughs) That's like the whole weekend warrior thing, like for real, for real.
5: Yeah. And then, like, the rest of, you know, for two weeks after that, I'm like, well, that's really stupid. Right. Because I'm getting too old for this.
0: Yeah. I was going to let you say it and not say it. For those of us over a certain age, yeah, at some point, some of that stuff has to stop. Yeah, I
5: keep saying it, but I keep going.
0: So, okay. So, wait a minute. So, you have to actually have surgery on that?
5: Maybe. We'll see what the surgeon says. Oh. So, the options are just put it in a cast, leave it as it is. Or put a couple of pins in it's it. It's kind of so, like
0: they've got the Barbie hand.
5: <laughs> like kung fu grip, you know? <laughs> Sorry, yes, kung fu grip.
1: you <laughs> has got the kung fu grip. Are you in pain between those Usually th- numbers I'm not. of one through ten? What is well, your pain? Well, this is what level? I told
5: the doctor, okay? They're like, well, what do you think? And all right, when I'm sitting here, yeah, maybe a three when I'm not doing anything. When I move it, it goes up to about a six. And when I run it into things, it's about a 30. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. Like, you want drugs? I'm like, no, nah, that's okay.
1: <laughs> uh. hall, mm. uh, toughing it out. Yeah. And you left-handed or right-handed? I'm right-handed, so. Oh.
2: Yeah, and you it is see his right hand. See me again. typing so like. <laughs>
4: <laughs> for the listener at home, yeah, like he's it, using it, one finger. It looks <laughs> like you can <laughs> hear that. It looks like that <laughs> drinking <laughs> bird toy that, that goes hurt, up though? and down. Oh,
5: yeah, doesn't uh, that
1: hurt though? That when you're doing that? No, not because it's his first finger. Well, I mean, but just to jolt around.
5: No, it's fine. It's fine. I don't <laughs> <meet the doctor.
0: laughs> Stop talking about it. Let me Denial. think about something else. And it's whiskey. It is thermos.
5: <laughs> like I, I, I've had this broken pinky for two weeks. And I have an exchange student living with me. A 16-year-old from Paraguay named Maria. And the whole time Maria's like, you need to go see a doctor. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. I've done this before. You know, take a couple weeks. It'll feel better. No, no, you need to go to the doctor.
0: Strong American. I don't yeah. need to go. <laughs> like, I don't have
5: time. I've got to go, you know, pick you up from basketball practice and all this. So she gets off the bus, and I drive by her. She's walking to the house. And I wave at her with my bandaged up hand. And she has it look like, oh.
0: Oh! <laughs>
5: <laughs> She's like, so what did the doctor say? And I say, well, you It's broken. She's like, I told you it was broken. You were supposed to go to the doctor. Why didn't you go to the doctor? I told you. (laughs) And I'm getting guilt tripped by a 16-year-old (laughs) Paraguayan.
0: Because teens are teens are teens are teens. (laughs) So how's that been having, because your son is how old? He's six. Okay. So you got a nice spread there. Yeah. Six, 16.
5: Yeah. So it's been great. She's, um, the moment she got there, she just jumped right into being part of the family. So she's like doing dishes. And she's doing dishes to the point where I'm like, you need to get out of the kitchen like go loiter or something because <laughs> that's
0: because she's not a teen if she's jumping yeah. in to do the dishes that's <laughs> weird she's like no it's no i'll
5: do weird. them i'll do them no get out of the kitchen but she's great and she's like she was on the soccer team at the high school which was great because joining the soccer team she instantly had friends you know mm-hmm. so it was you know she's like can i go hang out with my friends I'm like yeah sure but you know met from the soccer team so yeah it's been mm-hmm. wonderful She's leaving in January. We're kind of sad about it. Mm-hmm.
1: They play a lot of soccer in Paraguay, obviously. They do play a lot of soccer in Paraguay. But it's a different kind of soccer, I hear.
5: Yeah, it's a little rougher. It's a little more physical. So she would play on the high school team, and I think they were at a, Marietta, a game in Marietta. And she was just, like, throwing arms around stuff like that. But then she would say, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so she would knock someone up and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> then she's I, but she said, no, "I can't help it. I'm Paraguayan. <laughs> <laughs> like, this, this is how it works. Like, okay. it's a context sport. Fair it. enough.
0: So now, so what's it like having? Because you have a son, a young son. Yeah. So now you're getting jumped into teenhood. I have teens, so I, I'll try to leave my opinions to myself <laughs> um, on this. I love my children. I love my children. <laughs> I love my children. I remind myself of that every day. Um, but having, and it might be different because she's she's new and." and things are new to her, but have you experienced any of that teen I, attitude? I think or some of
5: it, you know, because I don't, I, I haven't had a teen before. I remember what I was like as a teen. Mm-hmm. But like the biggest thing is like, okay, we need to go somewhere at this this time, so I'm telling you now. And then when it's time to go, they have no idea what's going on. <laughs> i like, come on, I told you. I need to go wash my hair. I told you yesterday we were going to get pictures done. <laughs>
0: Which is why she wants to wash her hair. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> except at a certain time yeah yeah, okay, so now, how's that been um back and forth, especially having an exchange student and um she's she's already been raised, I mean she is who she is, uh-huh. she sounds like a lovely person, this is, but just that high idea of dealing because excuse me, we see this here at w o u b news we work with other people's children, and that can be a thing. <laughs> Um, but how is that, having someone else's child, of course you love them, you want to take care of them and make sure you send them home you know, with no extra scars or mm. cuts or anything, you know, nothing that's going to affect them negatively. But has it pushed you? Had you, had you so has it made you <laughs> think differently about what you're doing in your own parenting practice? I think
5: um, not too much, to be honest. Probably seeing that you know, her involvement with after-school activities has been beneficial for so I think it pushes me more in that direction with Harper, my six-year-old. But other than that, I'd say that's about it.
0: Has there been a, like a love life thing?
5: Uh, no, there hasn't. And when we met her, because we actually met her, we were in Paraguay in May.
0: Another amazing adventure of Chris Riddle. <laughs> uh,
5: so we met her in May, and her mom's like, "Well, she doesn't have it. it has to, she doesn't have a boyfriend." And she still doesn't have a boyfriend. I don't
0: know. Okay, and she's not expected to have a boyfriend. I
2: think that was mom I think, saying. I hey, think that's exactly like
5: <laughs> I'm saying this now, and I would like it to stay that way. <laughs> okay, Mama like, Troche, you got it. You
2: know. <laughs> it's like I want you to bring her back the same way yeah. that she was before. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
5: so one thing I add about Maria is we were talking the other day, and I wanted I asked her I was like, well, what what's been the most surprising thing for you? And she said the openness of gay people in Athens Hmm. because they don't have that in Paraguay.
0: The openness. Right.
5: And she's like, well, we don't have that many gay people in Paraguay. I'm like, well, you probably do, but it's not, you know, not acceptable as much in Paraguay.
0: Right. Right. (laughs) Right. So, okay. So what is it? Did she share any thoughts on?
5: Well, she did. She's like, you know, I, I never thought about it before too much, but I've seen couples around here and it's, it, not a big deal to me is what she said in fact a couple live across the street and um it's a lesbian couple and she's like i love seeing them together it's just so cute when when kelly gives sam a piggyback ride (laughs) so (laughs) she's like so they're just like you know any couple like like yeah okay so it's like the little victories and that's kind of the whole point
0: yeah yeah love is love
5: it's pretty cool
4: And that's another episode of 457SEO. Thank you for tuning in, whether it be on WOUB.org or if you are a brand new listener on iTunes, on podcasts. Yeah! That's new and exciting for us. We hope you tune in to our next edition, which we don't know exactly when that will be, but it will pop (laughs) up in your feed. Trust and know (laughs) that it will pop up in your feed. I'm Aaron Payne.
2: I'm Susan Tabin.
0: I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Atish Baidia. And that's producer Adam.
4: Adam Rich behind the glass making sure we sound good. Also, thanks to Nathan McGuire for providing the music that you hear right now, supposedly. I can't hear it personally, but just trust that it's there.
0: Go, Nathan. Trust. Go, Nathan.
4: And uh, yeah, so
0: bye. Bye. I think I talked right over you when you said your name. Can you nah, say
4: What do you think, Atish?
0: <laughs> meow, 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 meow,
2: meow. I'm <laughs> hungry.
4: I'm hungry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>